Hello, Jack. Hey, Zach, and welcome, everybody, to the Just Hands Poker Podcast. Uh, we're here today with one of our good friends, Nick Valinsky. Uh, hey, guys. How's it going? It's going well. It's great to have you on. Uh, we hear that you have a hand for us. Uh, I, I do, in fact. Um, so this hand was uh, from a trip I took to the Cleveland Jack about uh, a week ago. And this hand features a villain in uh, his early 30s. He's a big dude with spiked hair. Um, talked to the dealer a lot about how he wanted to go play low stakes PLO. Uh, kind of tends towards tag play, but has shown some bluffs from bad hands he raised with preflop um, and limps into pots a little bit too frequently. Um, he folds to C-bets fairly often if he hasn't hit at least a pair um, and has C-bet all but one hand I've seen him play. So this is a fairly detailed player profile. How many hours of play have, like, have you played with this guy when, you know, to make those, those assumptions? I, I played with him for, at this point, it was probably about two and a half hours. So I would say, one, it's definitely good that you're trying to figure out this stuff so you can, you know, make bigger assumptions and take more exploitive lines. But I just would caution that you could make all of those assumptions in two hours. I think that he would have to play an exceptionally wide range of hands and have gone to showdown an above average amount of times for all of those to be correct. Uh I think that might be true, but I think that to say that, you know, if you've seen him uh, get to 10 flops as the aggressor and see bet 9 out of 10 times, I do think that that's telling. Uh, the likelihood that he would have made a pair uh, 9 out of 10 flops is extremely low. Uh, so I think for that, we can definitely assume that he's see betting light a good frequency of the time. Uh, as far as his see bet calling tendencies... Uh, I, I would say it depends on what you've seen. But I, I don't think that, it, just depending on how many hands this guy plays, would reduce or strengthen the quality of those reads based on the fact that you say this guy is more of a tag uh, or has tag tendencies. It seems unlikely that he would have played enough hands in a two-and-a-half-hour time uh, to justify those reads, but maybe there have been and he's not as much of a tag as we have said. Uh, I still think that was a good player description uh, and will be very helpful in making decisions. Yeah, definitely. And we'll kind of use it as an outline, but just proceed with a little bit of caution. Like, And like as, as Jack said, the one that struck me the most as might not be the case is like how he defends against C-bets and C-bet calling frequency. Uh, on with the hand. Real quick, I just want to point out that I think that Zach and I have a tendency to you know, make strong assumptions on this show that we're confident about. Uh, we don't challenge each other as much as we're challenging Nick right now. But I do think uh, that just overall, you know, you sh we should all be challenging the sort of assumptions that we make and having a more math-oriented approach to, you know, how likely is it that what we've seen at the table is indicative of how a player plays. Yeah, and shout-out to Kate Hall on Twitter who kind of recently inspired uh, me to think more critically about the assumptions that I'm making. You know, when you have a really small sample size like this, like two and a half hours, like 60, 70 hands, like it's just very easy to see one or two things and make strong assumptions. And there's sometimes where that is valid. Like let's say you see a player like 
Rage with 4-6 suited in early position, and then bluff multiple streets. If you see that, I think you could be pretty confident this player is like definitely over-aggressive uh, and has like really high bluffing frequencies and a really wide range. But if you see someone raise uh, you know, pocket 10s from early position and then fold for an orbit and a half, this could still be a fairly loose, fairly bad player. But you just, you know, you might think they're a nit uh, if they're card dead, you know. So just something to keep in mind. Um, and we're still we're striving to make these strong assumptions. But uh, we also just want to keep in mind that our sample size is generally going to be very small unless we're a regular player um, in a certain game. Mm-hmm. No, agreed. I will, I will point out that if you see, you know, if, even with a sample size of three hands... If you see someone uh, open three hands in a row, it's very, very unlikely that they're playing a top 10% range. So, yeah, definitely be be on the lookout for extremes, uh, and then in other cases, be a little bit more wary. All right, Nick, so uh, what happens? All right, so um, the, uh, let's see, this was uh, at a 1-3 table, um, and it was at about 2.30 a.m., I have about 730 behind at this point, uh, and the villain, I believe, had exactly 234. I'm in the big blind for this hand, and the villain is under the gun plus one. Um, so the villain raises to 12 on that spot, and then there's one caller on the button uh, who... It's like this pretty bad and exploitable uh, Jewish guy who'd been drinking a lot and like had played up my ability at the table like several times. It was quite funny. And so, oh, I should mention that we're, we're six-handed at this point. So I call in the big blind with uh, king nine of clubs. So you said this guy's a fairly loose player. Uh, is 12 kind of his standard race size? Is that any bigger or smaller than what he's been doing? Uh, yeah, that's his standard for uh, early position. So in late position, he's bigger, smaller, or is it kind of standard for all positions? Uh, I definitely noticed him raising to 10 in late position. Okay. So even though he's like maybe a fairly loose player, he was on the list for PLO, like he does kind of seem to be aware that, uh, you know, he wants to make his early position raise sizes bigger than late position, which is kind of a rare thing. And to me would, even if I don't necessarily do that often, would suggest like, some level of kind of poker intelligence, even if he's playing too many hands. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. So when we're six-handed here, what do you think his like opening range looks like? Um, and you know, it, it's probably going to be much wider uh, because he's really in the hijack, not so much under the gun plus one when we're six-handed. And like, what's kind of the bottom of his range looking like? Um, I'd say the bottom of his range is like. Probably like uh, queen ten suited, uh, low suited aces. Um, probably some, maybe some, maybe some of the same hand I have in there. Um, probably jack ten suited as well. Um, I wouldn't say anything much lower than that, because uh, you know the only times I've seen him, I guess I've seen him do a couple uh, poor, poor choice raises, but. Um, Otherwise, when he gets into bad spots, it's been limped in. Do you have a sense of how long this guy's been at the table? And how long have you been playing six-handed? Um, so he 
he sat down at the table about 30 minutes after I got there. Um, and we had been playing six-handed um, not for too long at this point. There was one guy who showed up. Uh, well, no, there were two guys at the table just about 45 minutes, two more guys at the table about 45 minutes previous. Um, and one of them was this old dude had been, who had clearly been like hanging on there for like hours and hours with like $30 behind. Um, and then the other one was this like middle-aged black guy who I had like, I had busted him on like a weird, weird little spot. I can't, I can't remember the exact details, but, um, he was out of there probably like a, like a little bit before that. So I I'd say we had been playing six handed for maybe like 20, 30 minutes at this point. So I'm glad you asked that question because, you know, we're talking, it's two thirty AM. It's a weeknight, Nick, right? <laughs> uh, no shame, by the way, we've, 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 all, we've all been there. Uh, so I think there's this kind of magic moment where if it's like the player's last half hour, last, last hour, or they're just kind of reach a certain point in the night, they just start playing significantly worse. And it's almost like a switch. And, uh, I think this phenomenon's more prevalent on weeknights. And I think, that kind of small percentage of someone's range that always is just like they're absolutely out of their mind with a garbage hand. I think that percentage goes way up uh, in situations like these, like really late on a weeknight uh, when they've kind of just lost their mental energy but can't imagine leaving and they kind of just stay there until they lose everything in front of them. And this strikes me as the type of guy who like even if he has some like decent poker intelligence would be very prone to this effect uh, more so than the average player. Yeah, I, I agree. I Nothing about this situation makes me think that this guy uh, would not raise a hand uh, or open a hand like 7-9 suited, you know, 10-9 off suit. I think these hands are, are pretty likely. Uh, I'm not positive, so I'm, I'm maybe like doing a range analysis, not including all combos of these hands, but I'm definitely considering them as possibilities, uh, which is important because I think that depending on what type of range someone's playing, certain flops are going to hit those ranges a lot harder. Uh, like if, if given the range that you said, you know, we're not so worried uh, about a ton of straight possibilities on a, you know, five, six, eight board. Uh, but if we think he's playing, you know, all a bunch of nine, seven, nine, eight, 10, nine, 10, eight, well, 10, eight's not much of a straight, uh, possibility on that board, but then you have to consider you know those types of hands a lot more than if you think that the only hands that really connect with that port are pocket pairs and some suited aces. Uh, so that's the only reason I'm asking that, but I do think it's important. So Zach, what do you think about the call? So I think if it was folded to me and it was just the initial raiser, I think I'm going to be a lot more inclined to 3-bet. Uh, but I'm guessing when the button calls here, as you describe, like, a, you know, fairly bad loose player on the button uh he's never like calling to trap or anything so when you three bet he's almost always gonna fold most likely so i want to kind of keep this other bad player in the hand i also think that our hand uh against both of their ranges is kind of a dominating hand it's a little bit tricky to play because it's only only make a king high flush make some second nut straights but because both players are likely playing a pretty wide range even though we're dominated sometimes we're dominating more so i feel like uh, you know, this is a 
fairly straightforward call. I think if it was heads up, I think I'm definitely three betting this some percentage of the time. Uh, but to keep the player on the button in, uh, I think I'm always calling here. Yeah, I think to be clear, we're probably dominating mostly nines. Uh, I don't think we're dominating very many kings. I mean like flushes and, uh, you know, the occasional straights. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, okay, so Nick, to the flop. Okay, so um, okay, so the uh, the flop comes down uh, five king two rainbow, um, and the villain the villain immediately bets out for twenty. The the collar the Jewish dude folds pretty immediately, and then I call in the big blind. First, just a listener disclaimer. All three of us are Jewish guys here, so you know, no, no harm, no foul. <laughs> um, second, I think this is a fairly straightforward call. Uh, this again is kind of like can lead to a tough spot playing king nine suited, and I think maybe a lot of listeners will be like, "Oh, this is a hand that like I don't normally play," and then like maybe I play it now in the situation against a loose player, and I get into a spot like this where it's, you know he's likely not betting a, or opening a king that uh, is behind me. Uh, but this is poker, you know, like king hands like king nine suited will put you in difficult spots and tougher spots than playing a like top 10%, top 20% per, percent range. But uh, it's important to be in these spots because if you feel like you have a skill edge over uh, this other player, uh, you'll still be able to, you know, make make a profit in that hand even if you're kind of put to the test a little bit more and if you feel like you're when put to the test you're going to make a lot of mistakes well then it's perfectly fine to play a tighter range um you know in the meantime but kind of with the goal knowing that like you should always kind of try to widen your range a little bit so you can be in spots where you can use a skill edge against worse players that all sounds good uh, so I don't. Yeah, I think we both agree that a call is sort of the only reasonable option here. Uh, so what transpired on the turn? Um, so going to the turn, uh, the pot is seventy-seven, and uh, uh, the ace of spades comes down. Yeah. So the board now is uh, five king two ace. Uh, there is now a, there is now a flush draw on the board, and so the villain checks immediately. Um, so you said you're in the big blind and I assumed on the flop that you just checked first. Uh, and that when you said the vil- villain bets immediately. So, uh, on the, on the turn, you mean you check quickly and then he checked back quickly. No, I'm sorry. I, I made a mistake here. Um, so, so my bad, I actually, I actually bet out here, um, for, 46 uh which is totally totally my bad i just like missed the uh the order here and so that's about a little over half pot so i think that this is probably uh a bit of a well i guess let me let me actually turn this back to you i'd like to know uh what your reasoning was for this bet um so my reasoning for this bet is that I guess I felt like I've seen him, like I said, I've seen him see bet uh, a lot of boards um, that he's that he's been the preflop raiser on, um, and so 
when this ace comes down, I feel like I feel like there's a decent chance that um this did not hit him and if if it didn't uh then this might be a spot where I can um either get more information or get a fold out of him and then if it did hit him then I think I get a lot of information here. So I think you're what you're doing is you're bluffing when you bet out 46 here and you're picking probably one of the worst candidates of hands to be bluffing with here. What you have is a very good bluff catcher against a player that we've established has a wide range and is willing to see bet bluff. I don't know what you think about his turn barreling frequency is, but if he's capable of double barreling, this is the card to do it on. <laughs> uh, so I think in this spot, I think it's a pretty straightforward check and call of any type of bet, even kind of up to a pot size bet. Uh, where I would intend to check fold most rivers because even against loose players that have a propensity to bluff until we see them kind of make big bluffs on the river. I think it's okay to be make a bunch of exploitable folds. So I think, you know, you're beating all of their error and on this turn card. Now you're losing to a lot of their flop bluffs um, as well as all their better Kings. So I think you should still call here because it's a great bluff catcher against the air that he decides to barrel when the scare card comes. Uh, but that there's no need to turn in the hand into a bluff because any time you get a fold, you're beating that hand. So if you're betting and you're getting worse to fold and better to call or raise, there's not much point in the bet. Yeah, I agree. I think a couple other reasons, or one other reason why this is a good check-calling candidate is because I think... Uh, you still might have some aces in your range. Uh, maybe not a ton, but perhaps enough that a, a not very skilled opponent or an opponent who might be more likely to be fearful in sort of an irrational sense might check uh, a lot of their kings here. Uh, so when someone bets into you, I think you can you can say that there are probably fewer you know, king-10, king-jack hands uh, in their range, and so you're really bluff catching mostly against an ace. And depending on what percentage of aces uh, versus the rest of the range you think is bidding, I think it becomes uh, a pretty profitable check on the turn and then evaluate on the river. I think the one reason that you would ever want to lead out in this spot is if you thought that this player had a lot of kings in their range that... Uh, you know, enough were better than you that, and that they would fold uh, to a bluff here. I think that's the only type of hand that you would ever bluff out of this pot. I think that player would have to be very fearful and not very thinking because I just don't think you're representing very much with the bet here. You don't have ace-king. Uh, you might not have, you know, very many aces at all. Um, and so I think the only hand that you could possibly have leading out here would be uh, a set and that still seems like maybe a weird line a decent line if you think that you're going to get called by a lot of kings but for that same logic this it makes that betting with your sp your particular hand uh, even worse so yeah I think we both agree that this is probably a good check call spot but what happened as played alright so on the river the pot is 169 uh, the river card is the king of diamonds 
So I make a small bet of 55 to try and get, you know, called by aces at this point. So, yeah, when the pot's 169, he has about, like, I think, what is like, 160, 170 left. So effectively a pot size bet. So I'm either going all in or betting a sizing like what Nick did uh, to, you know, value basically value target aces. I think because your line made such little sense on the turn, and this is like a fairly loose player and it's late at night, I think I'm just always value shoving here uh, for about a pot size bet. Because, yeah, if I'm betting like one third of the pot versus the pot, I'm giving him significantly better odds to call. But I think his calling range is not as elastic as it should be. <laughs> so I think, you know, if if he, let's say with all of his aces, he calls a bet of 55, which I think is realistic. Uh, and he calls with half of those if I shove. Well, even though he's calling a lot less, I'm still making more money. Uh, so I think uh, against this type of player as played, I think it's a pretty clear shove. Yeah, I, I agree. I think a shove for value is better. And I think there's actually another element of this is that if we get raised here, uh, that puts us in a really tough spot with our specific hand. And I think that that might seem... You might think, well, okay, then if we bet 55 and get raised, then we can just fold. The thing is, I think our line doesn't make a lot of sense for having a king. Like, I don't think many players would look at us and say, okay, well, this guy probably has a king. I think a lot of players will think that maybe we have an ace, or I don't know what I don't know what they'll necessarily think. Maybe they'll think we're bluffing. And so I think that this player potentially could turn his air and even some aces uh, into a bluff here. I don't think it's always going to happen, but I think it's definitely possible because I don't think it necessarily looks like we have a king in this spot. And I think that then if we if we think he's bluffing, then we could probably have a profitable or at least somewhat profitable call when we get raised. Actually, I don't know. What I'm making is not making as much sense as I thought it would. I think even from a loose player that we've seen C-bet a lot, even though it's late in the night and we think he is definitely capable of bluffing some turns, I think a river raising frequency is just going to so rarely be a bluff even if our line doesn't make sense. Uh, so that would be the only thing that would tilt me towards betting like one-third pot, knowing that we can like comfortably bet fold this hand if we think he just has so many better hands than us. But I think uh, if I bet 55, I would likely fold to a raise. But if we shove, I just think there's so many more curious aces uh, and potentially even worse hands, but unlikely that will give us action when we shove, uh, that it makes the shove profitable, even if he'll just kind of snap call with all of his uh, better kings. I think actually, having gone through some some babbling, I think we can really comfortably bet fold on a mound of like 55 in this spot, then I kind of like that line best, because I think that this player likely gets to this spot with most of the kings uh, they played uh, or that they bet on the flop. I think they're probably calling most turn bets for that sizing in position against sort of a strange dunk bet. So therefore, because we're not sure that they'll call, uh, we were already sort of on the border of would this player call enough uh, of our all-ins to make it a more profitable bet than 55 with their aces? 
And I think the money we'll be saving if we think we're, you know, exploitatively folding against uh, their shoves, I think 55 is a good sizing in this spot. What do you think? My gut reaction is that it's close and I'd want to do some math and combinatorics before deciding. Yeah, I think that's right. We, I mean, we could definitely like create assumptions that support either claim. All right. So, Nick, what happened? Yeah, okay. So, uh, the villain then shoves for uh, 174, and I think for a second and call. Um, and the villain ends up turning over Ace-King offsuit. So, when you're calling here, do you think he's bluffing enough for it to be a profitable call? Do you think you're ever beating some worse kings like what were you thinking during the call um i'm thinking that that there's a chance here that he has some some low suited aces still in his range that maybe he made two pair on the flop or uh he made a pair on the flop and then uh made the second pair on the turn uh but ended up getting counterfeited by the by the last king um, so potentially he's he's trying he's trying to make some sort of bluff, but also I, I feel like there's a chance he's just unclear uh, about what he's trying to achieve with that bet. Yeah, so if you think he's that type of player, that definitely I think complicates the bet folding line. And again, like Jack was saying, like we could create a lot of assumptions where the shove is much better and where the bet fold is much better. Uh, but it's definitely possible, especially this late at night, like he gets two pair on the turn and then when he gets counterfeited, he's felt very entitled to the pot. And when he cheats his weak bet, he's just like, well, I still have a decent hand. I'm just all in, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I think that's a pretty decent bluff if he's intending it as a bluff, uh, because I think that that's a bluff that will probably get you to fold a lot of aces and, contemplate folding a hand like king nine then again i'll point out that you know i think zach's gut reaction that this guy would not uh be bluffing all in on the river very much is legit so yeah i think this is just another math question you know let's say 50 percent of the time this is a guy who will turn those hands into a bluff 50 percent of the time this is a guy who will only ever have kings here what's the right answer i'm really not sure and I think, though, the, the biggest lesson to take away from this hand is that we have a, a really good bluff catcher on the turn and a really bad hand to either turn into a bluff uh, or bet for value. And so I think that a turn check is probably the big mistake in this pot and everything everything else is uh, either pretty clearly the right choice or very marginal. Uh, so we really appreciate you bringing on the hand, Nick. Uh, look forward to uh, seeing your star rise and you know hearing more about your late night poker exploitations at the Jack. So thank you again for coming on the show, uh, and you know we'll see you soon. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, you guys. Yeah, of course. Hello, Zach checking in post production, uh, doing some of the math for this hand. So when we get called on the turn. I put villain's range as half of his combos of king nine suited, king ten, uh, king jack, 
because I think he'll maybe call half the time, fold half the time. Uh, all combos of suited aces that aren't two pair, all combos of king-queen. Those are kind of solid hands to, to bluff catch with from his perspective. Um, and then I gave him, oh, also uh, all of his offsuit aces, a ace 7+. plus. I said even six-handed, he's probably not raising. Worst pre-flop. And then for his better value hands, like set of deuces, set of fives, set of kings, set of aces, and ace-king, I said he was calling half the time and raising half the time, which I think, given the information we have, is a pretty fair assumption. Uh, so when we get called against that range, we have about 9% equity, which I think shows how, you know, playing this hand as a bluff catcher, as a check call, is the best play. Uh, but then on the river, against that range, um, when we bink the king, we now suddenly have 90% equity. Um, so I think given how much equity we have against his range, uh, you know, assuming that he's c-betting all of his ace highs on the flop, which I, again I think is a fair assumption in this game on a king five deuce rainbow board with a relatively aggressive guy that likes to c-bet, that's an ideal c-betting board. Um, then I think we just have to value shift the river because he'll have so many curious aces and he's not going to be, you know, a lot as elastic as he should be. And um, the only kind of two things that could lean this towards a bet fold, like Jack was talking about, was if, let's say, he slow played all of his value combos, which, you know, being results-oriented, he did slow play ace-king this time on the turn. Um, so let's say he slow plays all of those, you know, value hands, the two pairs, the sets. Um, we still have 83. 4% equity against that range. Uh, so his, he has to have an incredibly small bluffing frequency for it to be a profitable bet fold. And for the reasons mainly Jack described, I think he is going to have a bluffing frequency here because our line just really doesn't make any sense. Uh, so I kind of, in retrospect, I like the value shove uh, best. But, you know, as always, there are some assumptions where uh, the bet fold line could be best. But I think given the information we have, uh, the value shove is best on the river. Um, if you're interested in checking out kind of the ranges I did and like how the math breaks down exactly, I uploaded some screenshots of me using Poker Cruncher uh, to the blog post on our website for this episode. And before I go, I have to tell you again about the Just Hands first live coaching experience, uh, potentially with World Series of Poker main event champion Greg Raymer. Uh, this would take place at the Poker on Air Studios in Akron, Ohio, and we plan to host a four-hour, two-five, no-limit cash game. Um, the game will be filmed using Poker on Air's RFID technology and commentated by the Just Hands team, uh, along with Greg Raymer. Participants will receive a copy of the video with commentary, will get on-site feedback from commentators, and will receive a personalized League Finder document to help improve their game. Participants will also be treated to a dinner with Greg Raymer and the Just Hands team. Uh, if you're interested in reserving a spot for this and getting more information, uh, please write in to either Zach or Jack at JustHandsPoker.com. And for examples of what it's like playing on a table with RFID technology, uh, Google Poker on Air or go to our website for uh, videos where I've played in the games. Uh, and for an example of the kind of extensive League Finder document that will give each participant, uh, go to our website and go to the coaching page. Well, yeah, thanks for tuning in, everyone, and I hope to see some of you in Vegas. Um, I arrive this Saturday night, so if you're around and want to grab some food, grab a drink, uh, just shoot me an email.
Thanks and hope to see you soon.